Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I will trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. You may be seated. You know, we have to be careful what words we use. Um, because sometimes we use words thinking we know what they mean. And, and then it comes too late that we don't. The other day, uh, we were watching a movie on Netflix, um, a cartoon movie, and um, they said, uh, shame. And my son looked at me and said, Daddy, what does shame mean? And it was in that moment that I realized that even though I've paid good money to pay off student loans, I didn't have a good definition of what shame was. And, and I just said, it means bad. And... He was like, oh, oh, okay. Now, one day he's going to realize that that wasn't a real good definition for shame. But, but for right now, he's driving with it. And you know what? We tend to treat God the same way. And we tend to use the same words. Everything that's not terrible is good. Pizza is good. Chicken is good. Having enough gas to get home when to eat. When the gaslight is on, it's, it's good. And so it's hard when we say that God is good because we've used the same words. And, and you know, I, I try to reserve using the word awesome for only when I'm talking about God because I want there to be some kind of differentiation in my life and in my words. And, and so often it's so easy for us to just lump things together. And my wife, who's a therapist, tells me about this all the time. She says, you know, how are you feeling about this? And I'm like, uh-huh. And she's like, you know, there's more than two emotions, right? Like, and I was like, what do you, what do you mean? Everything's not a feeling. Um, we have to be careful with our words. Sometimes we can use them as a way of numbing ourselves and forgetting. When you say God is good, what does it mean to you? Is it just means that it's not terrible at the moment? That he hadn't done anything that you didn't like? When you sing and you lift your hearts up this morning, as you engage in this time in the word, as you find yourself in anguish, remember that God is good not because of what he does, but because of who he is, his character, that he can be trusted. God is good. God is love. Amen? Amen? Amen. 
Well, good morning once again, Fellowship High Chris, and welcome to this time in the Word, wherever you may be. Um, as I speak today, uh, there'll be page numbers on the screen, and those page numbers will correlate to the blue Bibles that were in your seats. If you don't have a Bible or, uh, of your own, then please take that one as our gift to you. If you don't have one that's easy to read, then please take that one as our gift to you. Um, if you know someone who doesn't have a Bible or doesn't have one that's easy to read, then please take that one and give it as a gift from the both of us. If you would find it easier to follow along in a Spanish version of the text, then if you will raise your hand, one of our ushers will get you one. This summer, um, our current sermon series is uh, entitled Braveheart. And throughout this series, we've been taking a look at the life of David. And, and next week, we end this series before rolling on to our next one. And um, this week, we'll be looking at a passage that we actually took a peek at um, earlier in this sermon series. And, and it's kind of odd that, that, that we're going to do this. Normally, we don't get this opportunity to revisit a passage that we just spoke on um, so recently. Um, but it's necessary that we do this. And I'm going to get to why it's needed in a moment. But first, I want to read the passage for this morning. And here's what it says. It says, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason. While the child was ill, they said, what drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground and washed himself, put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. After that, he returned to the place and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they said uh, to him. And while the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named his son Solomon. The Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. As the Lord had commanded, this is God's word. Last Friday night, um, when, when Trisha and I got home from work, uh, Toby alerted us that his throat was hurting. So I canceled my plans to be at the scent market the next day, and I took him to urgent care and um, we went and got home, and it wasn't COVID, which we were afraid of. It wasn't a strep, 
which we were afraid of because he was supposed to start school that following Wednesday, but he just didn't feel good. And, and, and so later that afternoon, as, as my little buddy was sneezing his head off and his eyes were watering, and, and there in the silence of the kitchen, he asked me a question. Dad, is God in our head? Now, I, I want to let you know that uh, children will test your seminary degree like no one else. There was silence as I pondered this question, and, and, and here's what was running through my head. I do believe in the omnipresence of God, and if you're not familiar with that term, what that term simply means, omnipresent means um, everywhere. And, and so to believe in the omnipresence of God means to believe that God is everywhere at all times. So in that sense, yes, God is in our heads. But on the other hand, was he asking me if God is just something made up in our heads? And, and while you might chuckle, thinking, why would a five-year-old ever think this? You don't know my five-year-old. In that sense, no, God is not in our heads. And, and I didn't want to ask a follow-up question because I was afraid he might follow one I really couldn't answer. And so I decided just to go with option A. Yes, son, God is in our heads. Then he replied, then God must be making me sneeze. <laughs> ah, there it is, right? That is the real issue. His little mom was trying to reconcile some things. See, each Sunday we bring him here and he learns these Bible stories and we tell him continuously how much God loves him and how great and big God is. And his little heart, as he's dealing with how he is feeling, is trying to reconcile if God loves me and if God is in my head and if God can do these great big things, then he must be causing me to sneeze. See, that it's always right there. That is always right there. If, if God loves me, if God can, but God doesn't, then God must have caused dot, dot, dot. If God loves me, if, if, if he could keep me from miscarrying, then, then why would God, why would a loving God allow me to miscarry? Why would a loving God allow my babies to die? If God loves me, if God ordained marriage, then why would God allow me to go through the pain of a divorce? If God loves me, if God gifted me to do what I do, then why would God allow me to lose my job? If God loves me, if God is my provider, you sung it, Jaira. Then why would a loving God allow me to lose my home? If, if God loves me, if children are a blessing, then why would God give me a parent who abandons me or abuses me? See, as you listen to this, you may be ready to give this, this, this overly obvious theological answer as I was ready that day. No, son, God doesn't cause us harm. See, we live in this sin-broken world, and, and, and because of the original sin of Adam and Eve, this, this world is ravaged by sin and brokenness and hurt. And, and, and see, it all started back at, and after every sentence, he sneezed and his eyes watered during my theological treatise. And a lot of us are like that. Some of, someone is hurting, someone falls, someone is broken, and the first thing we want to give them is a Bible lesson. 
And here's the thing. If you study grief, then, then what you learn is that's not the most helpful thing in that moment. And often, no matter how nuanced and how tight our theology is, it can come across as overly simplistic and downright unempathetic. What do I mean? Right now, there's a father in Haiti. A Christian missionary spent time with him, telling him about God's love, told him about the greatness of God, told him how he had been adopted into the family of the God of the universe. And he lost his family, his wife, his kids, his dog, everything and everyone he knew in the earthquake last week. He's wondering why God would keep sending storm after storm to his country, while God would allow natural disaster after natural disaster to hit his home. Why would a loving God take his family? Why would a loving God leave him with no one and nothing? Now, I dare you to look at him and tell him to look on the bright side. I dare you to look at him in that moment and, and give him the verse, it rains on the just and the unjust in that moment. There's a Christian mother in Afghanistan. She has no way of getting to the airport in Kabul, and if she did, she still has no way of getting out. Several years ago, she met this Christian missionary who told her about God's care for his children. And as the Taliban takes over, now she's wondering how she'll protect her daughter. She wondered if God cares, if God is love, if God hates evil, then why would he allow evil men to do evil things to young girls? I dare you to give her a theological lesson on how our hope is in heaven and not on this earth. I dare you to talk to her about how suffering is a part of the Christian life in this moment as she struggles with thoughts of what could happen to her daughter. There is an Afghanistan pastor of a small house church right now who is literally fleeing to the mountains to hide, and he is preparing him and his congregation to die. They know that this life is but a blip um, in, in comparison to eternity, and they know that perfect love casts out fear. We like to use that one a lot, don't we? But as they look at the faces of their loved ones, they can't figure out why God. See, I can be the worst at this. I seriously can. And it seems that sometimes the more you know, the worse you are at this. The other night, um, I asked my wife how we were doing because that's, that's just how I roll. That's how we function. Uh, I do checkups. I asked, man, how are we doing? Can we improve on anything? What's, what's wrong? And, and she said, we're, we're, we're okay. But she said, you know, Sometimes I'm having a rough day with the kids. Sometimes I, I, I've run out of patience with the kids. Sometimes I've met my end with the kids, and I share my frustration with you, and your response is, well, we ask God for them kids. See, it's not that, she said, it's not that I don't know that. I just need you to sit in that space with me. Listen here. I'm well aware of what happened in David's story. I'm well aware of David sleeping with another man's wife. If you go back and read our passage carefully, you'll see that the scripture doesn't skip over it either. It says that the baby that David had with 
Uriah's wife. No one is glancing over this topic. No one is making light of it. I'm well aware that he got this woman pregnant. I'm well aware that he killed her husband. I'm also well aware that verse 13 says that God had forgiven David. And if God is love and David was forgiven, then why does verse 14 exist in our text this morning? Why did the baby have to die? Here's the thing. I I have enough training that I could give you a theologically correct answer for why the child had to die. I could even tell you how it's descriptive and not prescriptive, and I could take a really good shot of telling you why God had to allow this bad thing to happen to David, but I decided not to. Here's why. As a leader, you have to know when your team needs a speech and when they need your presence. Job knew God, and in one fell swoop, he lost his wealth, his family, his social standing, and his health. His friends also knew God. And while Job had many needs, they had enough maturity, at least for two chapters, to know what their friend needed most was someone to sit with them. The scriptures say, then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. And no one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. As I prepared this morning, I couldn't help but hear the words of my son, the words of my wife, the words of so many of you that are struggling And then think of the images that I've seen over the last couple of weeks. I know, we talk, I know the hell that some of you are going through and living in right now. And I know that no matter how I try to phrase it, no matter how many times I say that God is not paying you back, that God is good and can be trusted, that you won't hear it right now because you're hurting So this morning, I just want to sit with you. The worship team is going to sing a song, and then we're going to have a period of silence. During the song, in the time of silence, just feel free to sit. And if you're going through something right now, you're struggling through something right now, and and you just need someone to sit with you in silence like Job's friends, raise your hand. And the people around you are gathered a little closer. If you know someone who's going through something, go sit with them. They might not have the the strength to raise their hand right now. After the time of silence, the worship team will close us out and transition us into the next phase of worship. As a pastor, there's nothing that I can give you that will keep you from finding yourself on the floor like David did as his child died. 
Life will slap you down. Life will punch you in the gut and take every bit of wind out of you. Even the best of us. Even the most mature of us. And there's nothing that I can do to prevent that from happening. Over this last week and this weekend, I've been about at my end. With one of my children, I've noticed um, some more things going on, some more quirks. I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with my baby. I know more of his story than most people on earth. I know what he's been through at his young age already. So it's hard for me not to ask why God one more thing. In Psalm 51, as David journaled about this time in his life, he says, I think in verse 7, that the pain and suffering that he was experiencing by the death of his child felt like his bones were being crushed. See, he couldn't get up. I can't give you anything that'll keep you off the floor. I can't provide you with anything that will take the pain away when life gut punches you. I hope to give you some people who will help you get up and return to worship. Because often when life slaps us down, we come up saying, I hate you, God, and we're too angry to worship. Or we come up saying, I hate me, and we're too guilty to worship. I can't keep you off the floor. I just don't want your story to end there. But I hope you find here at Fellowship High Chris are some people who will sit with you like David's servants did, like Job's friends did, like the disciples did as Jesus mourned the death of Lazarus so that you can get up and do what David did, go and comfort somewhere else in their time of pain and suffering. The scriptures say that where words multiply, so does sin. Sometimes we just need to learn how to sit with people and for that presence to be enough.
There's a lot of pain and hurt in different situations in this room and online. And as a pastor, I get to see a lot of that. And it breaks my heart for you. And I carry it. I don't always have the words, but I'm willing to sit with you. Continue to power up, pour in, and spill out. Have a great week. We'll see you at Jumpstart in the morning.